Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates Inside Science Interview Series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and we are broadcasting from just outside Washington, D.C. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Interview Series, we have a special episode that promises to challenge your perceptions and inspire action on the part of all, and especially our Smithsonian Associates audience. Today, we're honored to have returning guest, Dr. Kevin Mitchell, a renowned neuroscientist and popular previous guest on the program who will discuss his groundbreaking new book, Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will. Dr. Kevin Mitchell will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our show notes today for more details. But we have Kevin Mitchell today to chat about Smithsonian and all things free will and answering the oft-asked question about whether we as humans even have free will. Now, let's set the record straight. The prevailing wisdom often suggests that free will is nothing but an illusion, a byproduct of our brain chemistry, genes, or even the lows of physics. Dr. Mitchell is here to offer a compelling counter-narrative that will make you rethink all of these assumptions. The question of whether humans have free will has been chewed over by philosophers and theologians for millennia without any clear conclusion or even any agreed-on articulation of the question. Scientists have typically shied away from it to focus on more tractable problems. But recent advances and discoveries, in neuroscience in particular, are changing that. Indeed, it is fashionable among neuroscientists to declare free will is an illusion. Not only do we not have it, but also there is no way that we could. My goal in this book is to explore how living things come to have this ability to choose, to autonomously control their own behavior, to act as causes in the world. The key to this effort, in my view, is to take an evolutionary perspective. If we want to understand how choice and free will could exist in a physical universe, let's look at the details of how they actually came to exist. That, of course, is our guest today, Dr. Kevin Mitchell, neuroscientist and Smithsonian associate, reading from his new book, Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will. In Free Agents, and during our conversation, Dr. Mitchell takes us on an astonishing evolutionary journey. He'll tell us that living beings, including us humans, are not just passive entities being pushed around by physical forces. We have evolved, and we have complex nervous systems that grant us the ability to perceive the world, make sense of it, and act with purpose. Imagine that. <laughs> Billions of years culminating in the power to choose, to reason, and to shape our own futures. So what does this mean for you, especially for our audience of seasoned adults over 60? It means that understanding the evolutionary basis of free will can empower you to make more conscious choices, whether it's about your health, your relationships, or your overall well-being. This knowledge can be a game changer. So please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better show, Smithsonian Associates Inside Science interview series on radio and podcast, Dr. Kevin Mitchell. Dr. Kevin Mitchell, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Oh, gosh, it's good to talk to you. I hope all's well. It's been a few years since we've talked previously, but uh, my best to you and yours, and we're catching up. Uh, with one another overseas. You're, you're in Dublin. You're going to be presenting at Smithsonian Associates via Zoom. It's a worldwide audience. And so um, yeah, I'm just thrilled to connect again with you. So thank you. 
yeah, no, it's great. Really uh, fun to talk with you, and and I'm really looking forward to the um, chance to talk at the Smithsonian Associates. Great, um, I had a great time there the last time. Right. Yes, and and this one will be equally great. I know. Um, the the book that you've written is really wonderful, titled Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will. We'll talk about your new book, uh, that title, as well as your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. But why don't we start there and maybe just tell us briefly about, um, you know, what you are going to say to our Smithsonian Associates audience. Uh, you're going to be speaking to us via Zoom, and we're sure. all on Zoom these days. And so, um, yeah, we've... Yeah. We've, we've gotten used to the online yeah. uh, online interaction, and it's great to be able to reach people all over. So mm-hmm. I, I'm going to talk about free will. I'm going to talk about this, this age-old problem of whether we really are in control of our own actions. I mean, we, we feels like we go around making choices, making decisions for, for our own reasons. Um, but there's all these sort of challenges to that idea. And maybe, maybe we're not really. Maybe we're just fooling ourselves. How could it be that we could really be in charge of things when we're just physical stuff you know we're when all the stuff we're made of should obey the laws of physics how mm-hmm. can how can us deciding something or having a thought or a desire somehow push all that physical stuff around and um you know what i what i want to do is really convince people that there's an answer to that there's an approach to that that i think is naturalistic so it doesn't depend on the idea that there's some sort of immaterial spirit at work or or a ghost in the machine mm-hmm. it's just that the machine can control itself and really the the approach i take is is an evolutionary one to that problem to ask you know, rather than sort of having abstract philosophical debates uh, about whether free will could exist in principle, let's just ask in practice, how did it come to be that we can control our, our actions or that uh, any any organism actually can do anything? How, how does that happen? Because for me, that's really the big distinction between living things and non-living things is simply put that living things do things. And you know, it's almost so uh, taken for granted that we kind of overlook it. But it's a hugely interesting question: how, how do they get the power? How do they, how do they capture that causal power uh, in 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 a, in order to be able to act in the world, not just be acted upon? Thank you for that. Yeah, I you're in neuroscience. I I think one of the things that I enjoyed so much about the book is this approach to the evolutionary side of it. And I wonder, as a neuroscientist, what what led you to kind of approach it that way and explore the roots of free will from an an evolutionary perspective? Yeah, it was, well, partly that's my natural inclination Mm -hmm. towards any, towards any biological problem (laughs) Mm -hmm. is to, is to think that evolution is, is a good way to understand it. And in particular for this one, I think the debate around free will in humans gets really, really tied up and confused with questions of moral responsibility and even things like um, consciousness and so on, which are, you know, mysterious things. Or in the case of moral responsibility, there's all sorts of other societal aspects and cultural aspects at play. And I wanted to, first of all, disentangle those things and just ask I mean, how does any organism have control of itself? Let, let's put aside what that means for moral responsibility. And one good way to approach that is to say, well, 
let's really start with the simplest kind of instantiation of that power that we know of rather than the most complex one, which is human beings, and then try and work our way up from there. So try and scaffold some understanding. If we can get to grips with, you know, difficult concepts like things like purpose and meaning and value, those those almost don't sound scientific. They, they sound kind of mystical or cosmic somehow. Uh, but really, you can get a grip on them if you start with the simplest organisms. And I, you know, track in, in the book from the origins of life itself, what does it mean to be a living thing? And, um, you know, once you do that, you get this this view that what it means is to persist. That's what living things do is they keep on keeping on. And they do that by doing work. They have to they have to work to keep themselves organized. Otherwise, they they their all their bits would would just dissipate. And so once you uh, kind of grasp that perspective, then you can see well actually things have value relative to that goal of persisting, and they have meaning for an organism as you know they may be good or bad things to approach, for example. And so the organisms have to develop some some. Uh, systems to figure out what's out in the world, and then some internal systems to figure out what should I do about it to keep myself alive. And that kind of um, principle is basically the same in us, this most complicated sort of instantiation that we know of. It's just more sophisticated and more elaborated. I like that, to persist, to stay alive. I mean, I think that that's what you know, at the end of the day, I think that's what we are we're all doing. Uh, yep. I, and so maybe describe it a little further for me as a as a lay person and certainly our audience as as uh, sixty plus age adults may not grasp uh, you know entirely the nuance here of, of free will, but how do we understand it best? what What is free will? Yeah, it's really, really tricky to define. And I think, I mean, part of the reason people have been arguing about it for 2,500 years or more is that uh, we can't really agree on what it is. So I like to just try and describe the phenomenon that I think needs explaining. And that phenomenon is from our, our everyday experience of, of for ourselves and observing other people. So we seem to make decisions, right? We, we look around at what's happening in the world. We consider our goals. We manage our behavior through time. We uh, take actions when we want to. And, and, you know, not all the time. We don't deliberate over every decision. Lots of our decisions are, are just habitual. But we have the capacity to do that. And that's the thing that I, need, that, that I think needs explaining. And it's, you know, once you sort of scratch the surface a little bit and you think, okay, well, that sort of seems to need to be squared with the idea that that we're physical beings. And, and I mean, we're biological beings. We're, we're made of physical stuff. And don't the laws of physics just say what, you know, what's going to happen? How can mm -hmm. we inter how can we as selves intervene in that? So that's the question that, I, that I'm after. Right. It, it It's really the question, you know, because in my mind, as I was reading the book, I was just thinking, you know, aren't atoms going to do what atoms are going to do? And, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, it, it just seems like we're almost this, you know, machine kind of moving forward without, you know, a drive, perhaps. 
Yeah, and I think there's a few levels of, of sort of, uh, uh, they're all a similar concern, but they're couched at different levels. So you can say, even at a psychological level, you can say that you're doing things for reasons, but maybe you didn't choose those reasons. Maybe you're, you're just configured a certain way by your genetic makeup or your upbringing or your experiences. And, and any decision that you make right now is just an expression of those configurations of, of your brain or of your mind. Um, so that's one level, the psychological level, where really you're just kind of pre-programmed psychologically speaking. Mm-hmm. But of course, neuroscientists can, can say, well, look, all those mental states you're talking about they don't have real causal power. We know it's just neural circuits firing. We can see them. Look, we can drive them. We can make animals or even humans do things if we activate certain nerves. So, so really, it's, you're, you're just a big robot. You know, it's, just, it's just all electronics almost. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, of course, the physicists will laugh at that and say, well, that's ridiculous. Neural circuits, how, how cute. It's, not, it's nothing to do with that. It's just atoms, right? It's just the laws of physics that, that dictate, you know, how these um, atomic particles and, and quantum fields are going to evolve through time. And, you know, the deepest sort of challenge to free will is the idea that all of that physics is deterministic, that no matter how complicated it is, there's only one answer to how it's going to evolve through time. And there's no randomness or chance or anything to do there. And actually, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, you go ahead. I don't want to interrupt. Well, I, I just wanted to, to start uh, in reverse order, sort of uh-huh. tackling those, those challenges. So, first of all, physics tackles the, the challenge of determinism for us. Physics has shown that actually at those quantum levels, or even, even at so-called classical levels, the size of big objects like us, there is some randomness at play. Mm-hmm. So, it's simply not the case that there's only one future open. And that choice does not exist and possibilities don't exist. That, that's not the case. Um, and physic, at least physics doesn't say that that's the case. There's some indeterminacy at play at the lowest levels. Now, that creates a kind of a partly a solution, but also a problem in that, it, you know, if we were completely determined in physical terms, well, then we couldn't have free will. But if if our decisions are just happening because of random stuff in what our atoms are doing, well, that's not free will either. We're not making a decision. There's a way out of that, which is to realize that because the the um, lowest levels are not completely determined, that gives some causal power to the way that a system is organized. So the way that the system's organized can settle how things go. And that's actually, I mean, it's not, really outlandish at all. It doesn't violate the laws of physics. It's very commonplace. In fact, if we think about, say, um, how a, you know, a football coach imposes a strategy on, on his players such that they, that they are constrained to act in certain ways toward a certain goal, that's the kind of organizational power that I'm talking about. And so, so that gives a, a, a means for living organisms to organize themselves in functional ways. That is, their organization is designed to do work to keep that organization persisting. And part of that work is to figure out what's out in the world, figure out what your own state is, and figure out what you should do about it. And that really is the basis for action, for really genuinely doing things for reasons, not just because uh, you know your the physical system evolution is dictated by the laws of physics or anything else. 
and it even sets us apart further knowing that you know we as humans we we do work together we we can change our minds we set goals but then we can revise those goals and you know try diff- different paths absolutely and i think that's the the um really really crucial point and it's the kind of final point of the book because it traces this evolution of agency the ability mm-hmm. to to have these control systems which enable organisms to constantly adapt to the environment, um, adapt to their needs, to plan things over some time period, to carry out not just actions in a moment, but sustained activities through time. And in that way to actually persist as selves through time. And the ultimate sort of expression of that that we know of, at least on, on Earth, is currently human beings, where we have this extra capacity as well as being able to sort of you know have goals and have ideas or beliefs about what's out in the world and so on we have an extra layer that can have thoughts about those thoughts we can reason about our reasons we can even tell each other our reasons which gives us a huge kind of advantage in collective action and so ultimately if somebody says you know at that psychological level where you you're just prefigured you have these you know, preset reasons and goals and dispositions and so on, and you're just inevitably going to act them out without having any insight or control over those. I think that's just wrong. As a matter of fact, we do have insight into our own motivations, not completely, not all the time, but we can introspect about those things enough that we can even, like I said, tell each other about them. And we can, by doing that, by thinking about them, rethink them. We can decide, you know what? That wasn't a good motivation to have. I shouldn't have had that reason. That was based on bad information or it didn't turn out well or I should do something else the next time. And so that really gives us this level of conscious cognitive control in those moments when we're really, really deliberating rationally about something. And that, I think, is basically what most people mean when they talk about free will. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. Our guest today is Dr. Kevin Mitchell. Dr. Kevin Mitchell is the Associate Professor of Genetics and Neuroscience at the Trinity College in Dublin. Dr. Kevin Mitchell will be at Smithsonian Associates coming up. Please check out our website and show notes for more information about Dr. Mitchell, his upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates, as well as his new book titled Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will. Dr. Mitchell, I I think at times in my life, you know, as a younger person, I probably was less uh, responsible, maybe more impulsive. And I wonder if you could tell our our kind of 55 plus age audience, how, how our, our free will might change as we age, knowing that we might need to be more responsible at times. How do we get there? 
Sure. Well, I mean, let's start at the beginning mm -hmm. um, because I, I think if if we think if we take this evolutionary approach and this naturalized approach to free will, where we say, look, this is just an evolved biological capacity for cognitive control of our behavior, then it becomes much less sort of mysterious and mystical, right? So then we can think, well, okay, that's that's not just a capacity, it's also a skill. It has to be developed, it has to mature. And of course, what we see in babies and, and infants is that they don't have that capacity very much. They're not really in control of their own actions. Many of them, you know, babies are barely in control of their own limbs. Um, and so they have to develop those things. And of course, children are very impulsive. Um, they, they require time and effort to learn how to control those impulses in order that they can achieve longer term aims. And, and, you know, in a sense, this is what really distinguishes humans from other animals is that we can carry out these long term goals far into the future. And we have that sort of cognitive horizon that that's can even go beyond our own lifetimes when we're making decisions. And one of the really sort of key, key elements is that that, um, well, first of all, that skill, that capacity differs between people. Some people are better able to control those impulses. <laughs> they're, they're better able to plan over longer time periods, partly due to genetic makeup, for example. But also, of course, it differs over the lifetime. And, you know, teenagers, as you just mentioned, are, are uh, famously impulsive. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that, that's a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're at a stage in life where they should be exploring. That's their job, really. To learn. Uh, they should to learn, mm -hmm. to push boundaries, mm -hmm. to find their own way in their own position in, in social systems and so on. All of that makes good sense. And then at some stage, as the, you know, the these prefrontal cortex, this part of the brain keeps maturing into sort of mid-20s, that's the part of the brain that we really use um, for this kind of controlled action, planning, um, deliberation, and so on. So as those elements uh, areas mature, we become better at that. Of course, that coincides with the time in life when we have to get jobs and we have to raise families and and be responsible and have those um, that ability to follow long term goals and projects and commitments and so on. And um, so we, so we move from a kind of very exploratory phase to one that is more settled through time. And and of course, as as life goes on, it may become more and more settled. Right. And, and so a lot of our behavior is is habitual. And that's really a good thing because it we've offloaded the work that we've already done to figure out what's a good thing to do in this situation. We don't have to think about it again all the time. We already know. So we can do, you know, lots of our behavior habitually. I guess the, the, the downside or the potential um, you know, problem of that is if you get into uh, into ruts, as it were, mm. and you stop doing any kind of exploring uh, at all. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not. I this isn't a self-help uh, book, and I'm not inclined mm -hmm. to, or, or in any way, um, qualified to give uh, any kind of a life advice. But um, I guess what's interesting is to think about that agency um, in you know in one's own life, and to you know think about whether exercising it is a muscle that needs to be uh the, the, that needs to be um toned up every once in a while yeah well th again thank you i i do think this is very interesting and i, I do think it's very helpful and especially as we apply this idea of kind of collective agency that you know we as a group 
uh, or perhaps stronger than and get further uh, than we do as as just the the, the lone actor, the the lone yeah. wolf kind of idea. So as we are faced, so it brings up a question in my mind at least about the collect the idea of collective agency as we're starting to face some of these. You know, because mm-hmm. we talked earlier about pandemics and yes, certainly we're yeah. facing climate change. Yeah. How does that come into play? This idea of collective agency in terms of, you know, acting for the collective's good and free. I think that's, yeah, I think that's so, so crucial. And this, you know, the evolutionary story that I tell and the, um, is, is a, is a biological story. We can look at the biological systems that enable control. And, you know, I mentioned the prefrontal cortex and you can talk about all different parts of the brain and the neuroscience of it. And, but it's really, really crucial to recognize that in human beings, it doesn't stop there, right? We had culture, we have cultural evolution, we have collective action. We're the most social species, you know, on the, on the planet probably. And, and so what that means is that, um, you know, we have, in in a sense, an ability to transcend very local, very immediate kind of concerns that may be very individual as well. And so, a lot of our ethical and moral systems really hinge on promoting pro-social behavior, mm-hmm. which often means, uh, you know, inhibiting your own goals and, and, and needs and desires mm-hmm. in the service of allowing society as a whole to, to function. And so, you know, in one sense, there's some dynamics there that I think have a, a hopeful potential. If we look at something like climate change, you know, we can say, look, we can. It's possible to take collective action. We know what what needs to be done. Um, we could take collective action to do that. We could kind of subjugate our individual needs towards that common goal. The The, the flip side is, of course, that some of those some of those dynamics um, only work if everybody shares that goal. And if you have, for example, corporations, which in a sense can act like agents, right? They have in a sense their own autonomy independent of the people within them. Then then if their goals conflict with humanity's goals, then I think you're into a really interesting dynamic where, um, you know, it's it's almost us against corporations which aren't which aren't even uh living things and yet they have some agential like qualities Mm. so uh, you know i think it's important to get into these questions to realize the reality of of um free will in the first instance for individuals we don't need to be fatalistic and and nihilistic about it as some commentators i think are Uh, but also then to realize that these possibilities for collective action and to kind of expose the underlying dynamics at play that might actually impinge on our ability to be productive in those in those endeavors. Hmm. Fascinating stuff, Dr. Mitchell. I, I just so appreciate all that your your um, all your research. Uh, again, the title of your of your new book is "Free Agents: How Evolution Gave Us Free Will." I think the book is out this. But or no, I believe it's out in October. It's October third. Great, perfect. Thank yep. you. We we are going to put links up so that our audience can find Great. it. I just really encourage our audience to check this out. I want to talk to you for a second about the last chapter. Or really, it's the epilogue in in your book. Mm. It's about artificial intelligence, and I think you you refer to some commentators being very fatalistic about. I think we've heard a lot about AI 
yeah. certainly it's everywhere in the news these days. And and I wonder what you would tell us a little bit about the limitations of, you know, replicating human free will, you know, mm. in machines using AI and you know, yeah, going to save us from ourselves, our greedy selves. <laughs> I wonder. It's yeah. really it's really really fascinating and and like mm-hmm. yourself i'm completely fascinated as a as a sort of a mostly a bystander mm-hmm. um to this field i think mostly most of the systems that we've seen so far these really impressive things like chat gpt mm-hmm. and other you know large language models and things like that they they seem to have almost understanding of things and yet they don't do anything Right. All they do is produce utterances that sound plausible. <laughs> Good. Play, and I don't want to. I don't want to under. I don't want to underplay that. I mean, they do no, that am- yeah, right. amazingly well. Yeah, yeah. But they don't interact with the world. Mm-hmm. Really, they don't. They, they get. They passively are trained on loads and loads of data, um, and then they sort of infer a huge statistical structure of of words and their relationships to each other. But I think what it would take to get real artificial intelligence that's like natural intelligence is the ability to act in intelligent ways. So for me, intelligence is cashed out in the capacity for adaptive, appropriate action under novel circumstances. Right? You can tell an intelligent animal that, that can do that or an intelligent person. It's just fascinating stuff. Of course, our guest today is Dr. Kevin Mitchell. His new book, Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will, is just wonderful. I just, again, can't recommend it enough to our audience. I'm not the only one saying this, though. Um, Steven Pinker, author of How the Mind Works and a Harvard professor, said, Kevin Mitchell brings clear thinking and scientific rigor to a vital topic that leaves many people confused, caught between the preposterous alternative that either humans are robots, or that every time we make a decision, a miracle occurs. I I love that review, Dr. Mm. Mitchell. Yeah, we hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Oh, I'd be delighted. Please do. Neuroscientist Kevin Mitchell talking to us today about the research into the brain's inner workings and uh, the complicated way we think about free will. Again, coming up here at Smithsonian Associates, we will have links so that our audience can find out more information about Dr. Kevin Mitchell. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for the reading you've done today. Congratulations on this book and uh, my best to you. And we'll look forward to having you back soon. Thanks very much, Paul. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. My thanks to Smithsonian Associate Dr. Kevin Mitchell. Dr. Kevin Mitchell will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. So please check out our show notes today for more details. My thanks always to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe, and let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next week.